So, like I said, I'm, I'm launching right in um, to this sermon series. Uh, it's, it's been sovereignly appointed, and I'm a big believer in, in the power of the preached word, um, not because of the preacher, but because of the word and because of the spirit. Um, and so I pray this takes us to Jesus today. And, you know, pound for pound, um, Job is probably the book that focuses and hard hits more on suffering than any, than any book in the Bible. So here we are. Um, go with me, if you would, to a place. I want to set a scene for you, a true scene. Um, parents expecting, um, happily expecting a child. Turns out it's a baby boy, but they are soon to find out that the baby boy is completely blind from birth. Um, and one of their first thoughts might be, what have we done wrong? Um, is God punishing us? Uh, that, that child grows up. It's not an easy youth. It's not an easy life for his parents or for him. Everything's harder. Um, other families in the, small knit, in the tightly knit community, the small community that they live in, um, probably judge them and think, you know, what have, what have they done to deserve this? Um, the church, the Jewish church that they are in, um, in that arena, basically has a theology that speaks the same sort of thing to them. This, this perhaps is God's disfavor on you. Um, repent and all will be well. Um, because of his blindness from birth, this guy couldn't do much in this culture. And so he begs. He finds himself begging, um, and in fact, begging at the Temple Mount, which is um, really the place that all, all Jews gathered um, in Jerusalem. And so there he begged year after year after year. And after years of living in poverty hand to mouth, um, of being thought of as um, having brought this suffering on himself and really beginning to think that himself, you know, I guess my parents did something or maybe I did. Or maybe God knew I was going to do something. This is, maybe this is punishment. Um, just after really, living a really, really hard life of suffering, um, he hears a conversation that sounds a lot like conversations he's heard before as there are passers-by, and, and a few of them say, hey, teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And maybe they didn't mean for him to hear it, but he heard it. Um, th- there's nothing new here. The guy thought, yeah, typical. Um, again, yeah, somebody, somebody did something wrong for me to deserve this. But then another voice pierced, pierced through the haze of his thoughts and, and right to his heart. And this was a voice, and these were words that would change his life forever. Um, and the words were these. It was not that this man sinned or his parents. It was not that this man sinned or his parents. There's hope right there, but it gets better. But that the works of God might be displayed in him. And as you may have guessed, this man was Jesus, and these words were Jesus's words. And he was setting his disciples right, and he was setting us right. Um, and he went on to heal this man, to, to give him his sight back and to change his world and to draw this man to himself. Because to see Jesus and to believe on Jesus Christ and to put our trust in him and what he's done for us and not in ourselves and not in our own trying to clean up, trying to get to a good place before God is, is sight. And that's one of the things Jesus was teaching, but he also actually healed this man of his blindness. And so... That account's found in John chapter 9, and it really hits the nail on the head as far as 
one of the things that I really feel like Job presents us with. Um, the, the, not just the idea, but the reality and the fact of suffering in this life. Why do we suffer so terribly? It's one of the age-old questions. It's a, it's, it's a question that's especially poignant this week. Why do we suffer? Um, and it's a question that J- Job, the book, and the man face squarely. Um, Job is the main character in this story that we're about to read. It's 42 chapters long. It's an eight-week series, so we're not going to hit every chapter. But we are going to look at the book as a whole and really try to follow the narrative. And so for that reason, we're starting in chapters one and two, which are really the frame of the book today. Um, and Job is, is, he suffers worse than most men ever have or ever will. Um, not only does he lose all of his property at once, but then he loses something that just puts everything that he's just lost in a completely different light and makes it seem as nothing. He loses all ten of his children at once and receives that news at once. I can't even imagine. And so we get, we get a view of suffering and are able to sort of begin to look at some of, through the book of Job, some of the big questions in life. Why suffering? Why evil if God is good and all-powerful? Um, is God just in this world that is incredibly unjust, where all these terrors are happening inside and outside, um, inside my heart and in the outside world? But also we get a window into Job's own heart. That's one of the beautiful things about the book. It's not just a bunch of extrapolations um, that are unmoored to experience. It's, it's a window into this man from chapters 3 to 37 who's just crying out to God. His own particular suffering and his own coming to grips with that and his own wrestling match with God. So the book gets us incredibly dirty as Job does. And I pray that it would, in a sense, pin us to the mat with him as we look at all this together. Um, So like Jesus' disciples there at the Temple Mount, um, Job, and especially Job's friends, had a huge gaping hole in their worldview, in their theological framework, um, which prevented them from seeing what we're able to see just from the chapter and a half that that Scott read about what is really going on with Job's suffering, and, and therefore what goes on with our with much of our suffering. Um, firstly, in this opening text, which frames the book and is our key to reading it rightly and well, we see a few things about Job's suffering in particular. And really, in these few minutes we have together, I just want to focus in on suffering and on Job's suffering and then to think about what it means for our suffering. So I'm really gonna, just going to lay out six points. If you're a note taker, I'm just going to lay out six points, okay? Number one, what we see right away from the heavenly perspective, something that Job um, sort of intuits and understands but can't come to grips with, but his friends completely deny, is that Job is suffering not because of sin. Job is suffering not because of sin. Job is not suffering because of sin. But on the contrary, on the contrary, Job is suffering because he's righteous. So which man sinned, which, who sinned, this man or his parents? Neither. 
But this suffering is happening for God's glory. And beyond that, we really don't get much more of a response from God, which comes really in mass at the end of the book, which we'll get to in the second to last sermon, in the seventh sermon. But this man, it's clear, this man is suffering because he's righteous. That much the, the narrator really wants us to come to grips with and to understand. Um, we may suffer sometimes because we are living right and because God is so pleased with us. That is one of the reasons that we may suffer. I want you to, I want you to get that this morning. Even today, I mean, in Job's time, this exploded. This was a book that was so outside of, even though it was very in its time, because it involved a man who was a, a real man, who was in a real situation, who had real loss, who had real friends that did a real bad job, <laughs> which we'll get to in, a, in future sermons, um, trying to comfort him. It, uh, it was way ahead of its time and, in a sense, outside of its time. It, it was God's word coming to us. And even today, it's still, it explodes most of the worldviews that people have, um, most of the systems of thought, like karma. You know, you get what's coming to you eventually. Um, whole religions like Hinduism, even Islam, um, and so, so many others. Um, no, the book says your suffering in the past, today, or in the future could be because God is so very pleased with you. Wow. If you're suffering right now, what a lifeline that could be for you. What a lifeline. I pray you hear it. Um, there's this poignant passage somewhere in C.S. Lewis's massive corpus of writings um, where he talks about, I read this years and years ago, he talks about prayers and how Really, we ought not perhaps to be certainly prideful, but um, even uh, too, too very pleased with ourselves when we get ready, quick answers to our prayers on a regular basis, uh, which seems counterintuitive. It seems like, hey, God's listening to me. I must be living right. But actually, Lewis says a lot of times he noticed both in his experience and in the scriptures, that God would give quick answers to prayers for those, not always, this isn't a rule, to those who are immature in their faith, who are young in their faith, who need that kind of encouragement to be bolstered and nourished and built up in their faith. Um, but on the contrary, on the flip side, he says, also those who, to whom the heavens are as iron, I think is a phrase he uses, those who are praying and they just don't feel like their prayers are being heard, they feel like God is being completely silent, ignoring them, or it almost feels like he isn't there at all for weeks, months, maybe years. Um, they ought not to be, conversely, too downtrodden. Because actually, that could be God saying to them, both in Lewis's experience and throughout Scripture we see this, you can handle this. Your faith is in such a place where I want to take you to the next place. And that's only going to happen. It's only going to happen as the heavens are as brass, as it were. You have to take what you know about me, even when I'm not constantly leading you along by the hand or it doesn't feel like it. You have to believe on my word. You have to know that I'm, I'm there with you, even when it feels like, feels like I'm not. Weaning you away from what you feel, pushing you toward what you know, what you believe in his word, 
despite everything that's happening to you. That often God will reserve for those who are farther along in the faith, who are more mature. And so there's a, it's a sort of intolerable divine compliment, as it were. We see this in the life of Joseph in the latter chapters of the book of Genesis, in a really protracted narrative that's fantastic. We see it in Job here. I mean, again, Job is suffering because God knows. He's like, hey, look at my, hey, Satan, look at my guy, Job. He's upright. He walks with me. He loves me. Go after him. I bet you he won't, I bet you he won't fold. Wow. That's a, that's a, that is quite a compliment, but man, it really hurts Job badly. About as badly as you can be hurt in this life. Um, and in all of his railing against God, in all of his honest protestations and conversations and rants and screams and maybe tirades is too strong of a word, maybe not, against God, to God, okay, to God. He never, Job, and you'll, we'll see this as we walk through this book, Job never walks from God. He never turns, says, I'm out. He never curses God. He always takes his complaints to God because he knows that though God be my attacker, is what he says numerous times, he thinks God is the one attacking him. And we'll get to that. He still knows God is his only, as we, as we sang, God is his only refuge. Even though God be perhaps my attacker, he is my only hope. And I have no one else to go to, to cling to, to hide in. And that is one of the beautiful things that Job tells us and that he's held up for, to us for, as a model of faith. Um, there's that terse gem in Job where he says, though he slay me, he being God, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. This is the beauty of, of Job, one of the beauties. Um, now, this side of the cross, we can't hear these words without having them shoot us straight to our Savior, Jesus our Lord and Maker, who suffered completely, completely, more than Job, far more than anyone else in history at the present or in the future ever would. Because he took the composite hells of all those who would trust in him. He had to pay because God is just for every single penalty of every one who would ever trust in him. He suffered completely because he was completely righteous. And so Job just takes us straight to Jesus. What, what did God say right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and later as well? He said, this is my beloved son, talking about Jesus. Not, hey, I'm about to punish him for stuff he's done wrong. No, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. What he's about to go through, he's about to go through because I'm so pleased with him. And then these words in counterposition to those of Jesus from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus suffered because he was righteous, and Job pictures that for us. So that's one beautiful gift that Job gives us, a hard gift, but a good gift. God could be paying you the intolerable compliment of allowing you to suffer, of not answering your prayers, as you, of hearing you, he doesn't feel like it though, but of not answering your prayers as you would want him to. And he's crafting in you, he's creating in you, among other things, 
an eternal weight of glory, a weightiness. That's the word in Hebrew for glory, a weight, a substance that can't come, as I said last week, it is not going to come in the hot tub with a margarita, unfortunately. I wish it did, but it doesn't in this life. Um, it comes in the desert. It comes in the pit. It comes in the press, in the vice, as we are squeezed. Um, he's creating in us an, an eternal weight of glory through this suffering that's going to glorify him and bring you eternal bliss. This evil, and it is an evil, this suffering, which is an evil God is using and is going to end because of what Jesus Christ has done. He has redeemed our suffering. Okay, um, another reason, a second reason for suffering, the others are way shorter, don't worry, for suffering that this grave book affords us is in a word, Satan. So Satan is a second reason that Job suffers, that he just misses and that his friends miss, but we are privy to in this frame. If you just read chapters 3, so the rest of the book that we'll read, chapters 3 through the end, through 42, there's no mention of Satan again. And so that bit, this bit looks a lot like God pulling back this weird curtain on the heavenlies and giving us this apocalyptic, which, um, which means a revelatory or revealing view of what really, of the control centers of the universe, the levers that are being pulled that affect things here on earth. And he is. That's what's happening. That's what's happening in the text that we saw. Things happen in heaven, decisions are made, and then boom, consequences on earth. That's the way things really work. But the whole rest of the book looks a lot like our lives, other than the fact that most of us don't suffer quite this badly all at once, but we suffer. And a lot of times, the rest of the book, it's just Job working out stuff and talking to his friends and ranting and railing and in so much pain, and God, when will you answer me? And finally God answers him, and, and then we have the end. And that's what life looks like. Life looks like most of the book. It looks like God has, doesn't care. And like Job is suffering for his sin, but actually we know, and we're given this frame to know, that that's not the case. The whole picture is that this, the councils of heaven determine what goes on. We are in a huge cosmic theater working out things that God himself is concerned with. And to see that and to grasp that in this life can give us great hope and fortitude. So Job is suffering because he's righteous. Two, he's suffering because of Satan's attacks, not God's. Job will say over and over, and his friends think this too, you know, God's the one who's afflicted you. And that, there's more to that story. We'll talk about it at the last point. But Actually, Satan is the one who has afflicted you. God is so pleased, he's so pleased with you, actually. And he lets Satan go after you and, in fact, put you in the crosshairs. Hard. That's hard to read and it's hard to teach. But it has to be taught and it, and it has to be understood for us to live well. So we'll get to that too. But Job is suggested by God to Satan because he's so righteous. But, so those two things, but then also Job's character and faith, thirdly, are being tested in this heavenly theater. That is one of the things that provides the tension in this book as we walk through it. Will, here's the question, will Job hold to God and continue to bless him as everything is taken from him? Everything. Um, Job has very little idea of this theater. Do you know that this theater exists? Do you know that we are given an even more clear assurance than Job 
was than we have here in the book of Job, of the fact that the heavenlies are watching us. Hebrews chapter 11, it says, we are surrounded, it's in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11, we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And the, the image that's invoked there is like by runners that come into the stadium after a marathon, the final lap, and they're running, and they have the whole stadium cheering, cheering, watching, watching. Some are for, some are against. That's the picture we have here in Job, and that's what the New Testament author of Hebrews tells us is happening right now, right now, as we live, as we think, as we're alone, as we're with other people, as we make our decisions. These decisions will have eternal consequences. This is a, your decisions are a, 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 a rock that you drop, and the ripples will be eternal. Um, and people are cheering you on. They are watching you right now. And one of the takeaways there is be encouraged and run, therefore. Run the straight race of faith in Jesus Christ. Um, I think of, and if you're new here, you'll, you'll just think this is an abnormal thing. But if you're not new here, you know this is every other week. But I think of Lord of the Rings. Yes. Amen. I can't get an amen for scripture, but I get an amen for Lord of the Rings. <laughs> And Frodo Baggins. Um, Gandalf. Um, the wizard is never late. All right. Um, I think of Frodo. I think of Frodo and, uh, and just how the thing I love most about the book, and I could go on about things I love, but the thing I love most about it is that it's this little hobbit doing this little thing. He's, just, he's a ring bearer. Um, and he says in that poignant scene, in that poignant line at the Council of Elrond, in, uh, in Rivendell, before they set off, the Fellowship of Nine sets off on their journey. He says, I, after a long pause and after much hubbub, he says, I will take the ring, though I do not know the way. He is the ring bearer, and he simply is faithful to go as far as he can with what has been assigned to him, which is a later great line from Gandalf the Wizard saying, basically, all we have to do, the only thing we are charged with, is what's been put before us. Those are the cho- that's the choice we have to make, is what will I do with the time that's been given to me? Hmm? And what we see is a little tiny hobbit who's good for nothing but being devoured by a dragon, really soft and pink and hairy and doesn't even wear shoes and loves mushrooms. He's not a great warrior. He's not a great wizard. He's not a demonic orc. But he carries that ring into the midst of the heart of darkness, and he does his duty. And in the end, he needs help. And he gets help from the unlikeliest of places. I'm not going to spoiler alert it for you if you haven't read it or seen it. But he um, is faithful with what he's been given. And I think of Frodo. And I think of Job. Um, fourthly, the, again, I've touched on this. This is a corollary. But the central question in this book is, I think, the one Satan asks God in, if you have your Bible, chapter 1, verse 10. Does Job serve God for nothing or for no reason. In other words, what does Job's love for God consist of? This book helps us see that. Um, Does he love God for what God gives only, primarily, for the fact that, I mean, he is the richest dude around. He's got all the stuff. God's given it all to him. It's all a blessing. Is that why he loves God? And Satan says, yeah, if I take that away, his love's going to disappear? Or does he love God, not for his hand, not for what God gives, but for his face, for who God is, for the fact that he is worthy as creator and redeemer. He is 
excuse me, he is worthy of everything that we have, even if he takes all that we have away from us. It's really his. So we li- really, Job is this man in a fishbowl for us, but really I think it helps us to see and hopefully will help us to see and gain encouragement from our own suffering and, and, and fortitude for the journey. Um, and you know, you can ask this of any relationship, like why, my wife could ask me, why do you love me? And if we got to the truth of that, if I just loved her for what she did for me, the good stuff she gave me, it just wouldn't be enough. It wouldn't be, it's tinny, it's insubstantial, it's not right. There's just something not right about it. So, um, this suffering is a real astringent that it just burns and peels and strips away everything but what can't be taken. Does Job love God for God or just for the gifts that he gives? And we see, we see Job after he loses not just his property but his children. What does he do? He hits the ground. He shaves that head. He hits the dust. And he mourns and he worships. And he says these amazing things that were in the notes but have been taken out of the notes. Um, God, you gave me everything and you've taken everything away. Blessed be your name. In all this, he didn't sin. Um, And as we move throughout this book, you'll see, just keep this in mind, not going to talk about it now, but We'll look mostly at Job, but we'll also, in the center sermon, we're going to look at the, a composite of what all the friends say throughout the book. And you'll notice a difference. What the friends say sounds a lot like what we say in church, unfortunately, and what I tend to say, the advice I tend to give, platitudes, religious stuff, churchy language, answers that we think might make things better, but we just learned them. And not that, hey, I learned a lot of great stuff in Sunday school, but in the pit, the, the pit, you need, you need real food. And Job... By contrast, what he says can almost sound blasphemous, but at the end, we're surprised that God says, actually, what Job spoke of me was right, and what the friends spoke of me was wrong. And there's a certain substance and solidity and beauty to what Job says, because it's real, and God loves that. He loves that kind of honesty. And there's a tinniness and a hollowness and a fakeness and a plasticity to what the friends say. And God doesn't like that. And that's convicting. But it's also really encouraging that we serve a God who wants the real and who is real. He is the word. And what he says and does is real. You can rest on it. You can lean on it. It's not going to break. Fifthly, God is not the author of evil, but it must get his permission to do what it does. Okay, God is not the author of evil. But it must get its permission, his, its permission to do what it does. His permission, excuse me, to do what it does. If you look at verses six and seven, um, the spirit, the evil spirits, um, and the good, the good ones present themselves before God to give an account of their activities and their whereabouts. They have to answer God's questions, His interrogation. They have to answer, um, and they have to get God's permission. Satan, Hasatan, the accuser. It's not Satan. It's the Satan, the accuser. It means accuser. This is Satan's favorite thing, and this is what he does. He accuses us before God. And whom do we have in heaven on earth to stand before us to rid us of that accusation, to make that accusation untrue, but Jesus Christ, the God-man, who stands between us and the Father and says, "Uh uh-uh, I paid for that sin on the cross. 
I live that perfect life on this earth. He's trusted in me. I'm his refuge. I paid for that. No double jeopardy, God. He is our defender before the accuser and our only defender. If you are hiding in anything else this morning, I want to charge you right now, run to Jesus. And I pray that this book and our Holy Spirit takes you there. So what does God say? At first he says to Satan, okay, go after him. Take everything away from him, but don't touch him. And Satan does, but he does not touch Job because he can't because thus far and no farther. Through all of our suffering, we have to know, and I pray that you're encouraged by this fact. Our suffering may come from the hand of Satan. It is an evil. God is not the author of suffering or, or sin, but it goes through his hand. And he directs and ordains everything. And it can't go beyond what he says. And later, he says, okay, you can touch Job, but don't kill him. And Satan has to do exactly what God says. He has to get permission for everything. Satan had to get permission for all the events this week from God. God didn't author him. God directed him. Yes, he did. He's good. If God wasn't directing these things, God help us all. He directs them. He doesn't, he doesn't author them. They don't come from him, but he is in control of them, and he is using them through the person of his son, Jesus Christ, for his glory and our great good. This book promises that to us. And the book within which this book is set, the Bible, points us consummately to even a clearer picture of that truth with Jesus. The ultimate evil, the ultimate cosmic train wreck. We killed God. We killed the Son of God. Because that's how evil, when I look at the cross, I think of how much God loves me, but I also need to think of this. That's how much I hate God until God makes me new in Christ, until God changes me by faith in what Jesus has done. The cross is a picture to me of what I will do to God. I will crucify him. And we did. And God orchestrated it and used it to save us. And that is good news. And that is something that Job is sort of an entree into. Right. So, lastly, this is the hardest truth, I think. Um, so I saved it for the end. I have read next to it, so maybe I will. But um, look, I want to be careful here. Like I said, evil comes from Satan. Evil is resident within us as we are born sinners opposed to God. And it takes the intervention of God for our salvation i.e. the person of Jesus Christ. Um, but this attack come, came from Satan, but it also came through God's hand. If you look at the language carefully, you see that. So verses 11 and 12, Satan asked God to stretch out God's hand. So chapter 1, 11 and 12, Satan says, God, stretch out your hand and strike all that he has, and he'll curse you to your face. That's Satan's wager. God responds by placing all Job has, in the next verse, in Satan's hands. So Satan says, God, strike out your hand and touch him. And the next verse says, God gave all, except for Job's body, into Satan's hands. Again in 2, 5, and 6, whose hands are Job's children and his property in? Satan's. Yes. Are they in God's? Well, in chapter 19, Job pleads 
with his accusing friends. He says, quote, have mercy on me, Job 19. Have mercy on me. He repeats it. Oh, you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Same word. For the hand of God has touched me. Chapters 1 and 2 tell us it is Satan who strikes God, who strikes Job, excuse me. Chapter 19 tells us it is God who strikes Job. And God says later that Job speaks of him right or solid words. Well, which is it? Here's the thing, guys. Who has struck Job, Satan or God? And I want to put in front of you with trembling, but with a fair degree of confidence, I think the answer is both. And I want to submit to you again that if God did not appoint and direct these things that happened to Job, then Job would have had no hope. Because it would have just been God saying, okay, Satan, don't, you know, have at him. I'll somehow work it out. No, that's not at all the picture that we are given. Satan does this evil, and it pains God more than it even pains Job for his loss. But God is directing it. God is appointing it. It is going through his hand. And that is an encouragement, and that is even a safe place for us to rest as we suffer a safe place. Look at his own son who entrusted his soul, his body and soul to his father. Into your hands I commit my spirit as he hung on that cross. God was in control. The father was using it and so he does here. So does God allow um, does, does God allow evil and suffering mean God causes? No. Does God allow it means he appoints and directs it? Yes, but as John Frame, a theologian, says, God does not do evil in bringing it to pass. God does not do evil in bringing it to pass. We have to remember this, this is not God allowing or appointing sin, rape, or murder. He's suggesting to Satan that his righteous servant be tested. Go ahead and do your worst, Satan. Don't do this, this, and this, but go ahead. You test my righteous servant. I'm going to use it. There's a difference there. He's not suggesting sin, but suffering as, and loss as a test. Um, Job's question in 2.10 is, to his wife is really helpful. Chapter 2, verse 10. She, he says, shall we receive good from God's hand and not evil? The tacit answer to this, the author's answer, I think, is no. To live well, we need to receive all things as from God's hand, both good and evil, while knowing that he is good and that he is not a tit-for-tat God. That means I shouldn't necessarily be super pleased when good things are happening to me and think, I deserve this, I'm, or I earned this. Conversely, we ought not to be downtrodden and depressed when we're suffering and think, well, I deserve this. That's not necessarily the case. This is not a tidy book, and that's a hopeful thing because the only thing tidy in this book is the answers of Job's friends. And they're thoroughly denounced at the end. This is a very untidy book, as untidy as life. And guess what? Our God entered this untidy life. And he died an ignominious death. And his suffering means for us not just that we can endure, because he now, he works because of what Christ has done through our suffering for his glory and our good, but also that he's going to end it. Because suffering is an evil. It's not going to last forever. And when he comes in power, to judge all things. He's going to finish it. He's going to crush. He's already crushed Satan's head, but Satan still writhes. Shooting still happen. Pain and suffering still happen. Injustice still runs rampant, but God is directing it, and one day he's going to end it. 
because of what Christ has done for us. Because Christ is risen. He's not dead. He's risen victorious over sin and death, and he's reigning now. Um, I'm going to close there and just sing you a song. Aha. Only one stanza, don't worry. Um, it's my favorite song, I think, of one of my favorite folk artists, David Wilcox, whom I mentioned a couple weeks ago. It's called Show the Way. He says, he says, if someone wrote a play just to glorify what's stronger than hate, would they not arrange the stage to look as if the hero came too late? He's almost in defeat. It's looking like the evil side will win. So on the edge of every seat, from the moment that the whole thing begins, it is love who mixed the mortar, and it's love who stacked these stones, and it's love who made the stage here, though it looks like we're alone. In this scene set in shadows, like the night is here to stay, there is evil cast around us, but it's love that wrote the play. And in this darkness, love will show the way. And we know that's true because of Jesus. He has architected all of this. And because of his cross and because of his resurrection, we know that he has entered our pain and he has overcome our pain and he is with you now where you are. So hide in him, run to him. Let Job take us there these next seven weeks now. Let me close. Father, I thank you for Job. I thank you that he is a real man who really suffered horribly and has helped us and will help us so much in the, uh, in the foxhole, in the pit. Jesus, I thank you for going to the grave for us, for hanging on that cross for us, for taking, for absorbing the evil and the suffering and the injustice of this world and using it now because you're victorious over it um, for our good and for your glory. We have that great hope, and we, we know that you're coming again, that this is not the end, but that the end is nigh, which is really just going to be the beginning of the rest of all things forever. And so we, we thank you for this book. I, um, I thank you for the word that you gave, and just pray that you continue to speak during this time of communion and prayer and worship. Um, send us out from here encouraged wherever we are. Help us to be salt and light in this dark, but uh, in this dark world where light is indeed dawned and is breaking out. Help us to be agents of light. In Jesus' name, amen.